This morning as you're seated, I hope if you have your Bible, you take it out. Go ahead and be turning to the book of Luke. This morning we're going to be in Luke 8 as we just continue walking through Scripture. And maybe this morning you're a guest with us, maybe because of the baby dedication or something else. It's a great day to be here because we have been leading up to this day for the last couple of months as we as a church have been praying about a commitment a resource initiative that we're doing so that we can build a new student building, so that we can just continue to reach the next generation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've been praying about this for the last couple of months, have meetings about this, business meetings, all kinds of things. And today is a day where we just have what we call Commitment Sunday. Just a day if God has laid on your heart to commit to giving to this that you can give, and then God can use us as a family of faith together that we can do more together than we can ever do apart. And so I doubt anyone in this room can build a student building by themselves, but together we can do anything for the glory of God. So when you came in this morning, you got an envelope. It's just a commitment card, really, just like this. And so at the end of the service, we're just going to ask you to do whatever God laid on your heart. And maybe that's to give a one-time gift. Maybe that's to make a three-year commitment over and above what you already give to the church. And we believe that God will supply the means so that we can build a student building and do a few other things through missions and other adventures so that we can reach the world for Jesus Christ. The reason we're doing this is because we want to pay cash for this building. We don't want to go into any debt. We're not going to go into any debt to build it. So we believe God can do that. And so today we're going to see that. And I just want to share with you already, we've had people already starting to commit to this early. And we've already had almost $500,000 committed to this work, even in early commitments before we even had this commitment day. So God is already working and moving, and I know he'll continue to do that. So at the end of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come just lay your gifts down at the altar. And we're just going to do that as membership here and regular attenders. We're just going to ask them to do that. And we're just going to see what God does as he uses us for his glory. So the past few weeks, I've tried to build the case biblically for you, statistically for you, why it's so important that we reach the next generation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's just practicality in all honesty, and I tell you this all the time, but in America anyway, out of everyone in America who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ, 90% of them say that they came to faith in Jesus Christ before the age of 18. So if we want to reach our nation with the gospel of Jesus Christ, guess who we must reach? The early generation before they reach the age of 18. Because when they reach the age of 18 and when they go older and older and when they say no to God and no to God and no to God, their heart becomes hard and callous and they never respond in faith to Him. But through reaching the next generation, we can affect our world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's why we're doing everything we're doing. So I've tried to share that with you. And this morning, I just want to lay one other argument for you. And I'm not trying to manipulate this. I'm just walking through Scripture, through the book of Luke. So all I'm doing is coming to where God has led us today, even before I knew where He was going to lead us. And so just a moment, we're going to look at the parable of the lamp there, how we as Christians are called to be light. So in just a moment, we'll read there in Luke 8, starting in verse 16. But before we read, I just want to ask you a question. And it's the same question I asked last week. I don't know if you caught it because it was in the middle of the sermon. But this question, for me anyway, it convicted me and penetrated my heart. And it really affected me this week as I thought about it. And I want you to think about it again. And here's the question. Simple, but the answer is a little harder. If God, if God were to answer every prayer that you are praying right now, how many lives would be saved? 
If God were to answer every prayer that you prayed this morning, this week, even this month, how many lives would be changed for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many miracles would happen for people? How many? Would God send revival? Would God change the world through your prayers? This week, as I examined my prayer life through the lens of that question, here's the thing I found out about my prayers. I found out if God answered every prayer that I prayed, my life would be a lot more comfortable. My family would be a lot more blessed. But through my prayers, the world really wouldn't be changed. I take it a step further. With all the resources and blessings that God has given you, have you stewarded those resources so that God can let the nations hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you might not know it, but that's why He gave them to you in the first place. Would those who are hungry and thirsty and who have literally nothing, would their lives be changed because you give? I know the answer. And so do you. And here's what those two questions reveal. They reveal that we're a selfish people. You know, I like that, but that's reality. Because here's the way we pray, here's the way we give. If everything's okay in our life, if everything we care about is going well, if our family is blessed, then maybe, just maybe, we'll pray for something else. Maybe, just maybe, we'll give to something else, but only at that point. Why? Because we're selfish. I tell you this a lot, but I believe with all my heart And I believe it more today than when I became your pastor three and a half years ago. I believe with all my heart that we're living in the last days. That's what the Bible calls them. I believe that we're living in the generation. We're living in a time period where Jesus Christ is going to come back to this earth. And I know it's been 2,000 years since he ascended up into heaven. But the Bible says that he is coming back. And the Bible says he's being patient. God is being patient about sending Jesus back so that he can see more people saved. 2 Peter 3, 9. He is being patient about his promises so more people can repent and come to the Lord. But I believe that the waiting may come to an end because I believe we live in a day that can see Jesus Christ return to this earth. And here's the problem with that. Is if Jesus Christ does come back to this earth today, how many thousands of people just within a few mile radius of this church will have not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and would die and go to hell because we are selfish people? It would be thousands. And I'm not talking about the by people in China. I'm talking about people that live in Northport, Alabama and Tuscaloosa County within just a few miles of this church, within the earshot of this church. How many would not know Jesus Christ? You see, the problem because of our selfishness, because we care more about our lives than the things of God, the church in America, our church, we've become irrelevant. We've lost our influence. Not long ago, Gallup, they did a research poll of Americans. And they found that 78% of all Americans say that the church in America has no influence over the country any longer. 78%. Why is that? It's because the church, you and I, look more like the world than we look like the church. We look like more of the world around us, especially than the church in the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts. 
And the problem is because we look more like the world and our hope is in this world and our hope is in the things of this world. When people come to church, they don't find anything different in here than they find out there. We offer them the same thing that they offer. We don't offer them the hope of heaven and what Jesus Christ says that this ain't our best life. Our best life is yet to come. We don't offer them the truth of the gospel. We mask it because we're ashamed. Because we don't want to sound weird. We don't want to sound different. Many years ago, there was a British preacher, G. Campbell Morgan. And he said this over and over again. He said, the church did the most for the world when the church was least like the world. That's true. And because we're more like the world than we are the church, we're irrelevant. So this morning, according to the word of God, I just want to show you how God, through Jesus Christ, has called us to be relevant. And all it is is a parable. And I told you last week, a parable is just simply a story or a metaphor to convey spiritual truth. And all through the Gospels, all through the New Testament, Jesus uses metaphors or stories to convey spiritual truth. And that's what he's doing right now. And he's talking about light, specifically a lamp. So look there in verse 16 of Luke 8. This is what he says. He says, no one lights a lamp and then covers it with a bowl or hides it under a bed. A lamp is placed on a stand where it is lit and can be seen by all who enter the house. For all that is secret will eventually be brought into the open. And everything that is concealed will be brought to light and be made known to all. So pay attention to all who hear. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken from them. So here, Jesus is talking about light. And he's talking about a lamp, just simply in a home. And all that lamp does is it just illuminates the home because it fills the home with light. Now, all through the Bible, if you read the Bible, one thing you will see is you'll see the difference between light and darkness. In the Bible, light always represents God. It always represents good. It always represents truth. Darkness in the Bible always represents deceit. It always represents evil. It always represents Satan. Think about what Jesus calls hell. He says it's the place of outer darkness. He calls Satan the prince of darkness. The Bible calls God the God of light. So here... In Luke 8, Jesus is talking about light, and he's talking specifically about a lamp that illuminates darkness. So in this parable, I just want you to see three things about light. First thing I want you to see about light is not about light at all, because I want you to see that our world is growing darker. That's what's happening. Now, darkness and light have always been in spiritual conflict, even since the beginning. You can go back to Genesis 1, and you can read about God creating the heavens and the earth, and the Bible says that there was darkness that covered the earth. So in verse 3, what does God do? God said, let there be light. And there was light. And the light overcame the darkness. But the problem was that there's still in spiritual battle or conflict. In Genesis 3, what happened is darkness came back in the picture. Because Adam and Eve, they chose to walk away from the light and to walk into darkness when they chose sin. And when they chose sin, then darkness, the Bible says, covered the earth. Because sin covered the earth. And because God is light, He had to separate Himself from the darkness. And He separated Himself from the earth. And we, as human beings, were left in darkness. And the world is dark. 
Now, we don't see the world as dark. We just think the world is inherently neutral. But the world is not neutral. Because light has departed, the world is dark. And it's bent on destruction. Because it's bent on us being kings of our world. And we are selfish people like we talked about earlier. And we want to be the gods of our domain. And we want to be the god of our life, directing our life, getting all the things we want, collecting the things we want, and doing whatever we want. And because that's who we are, we walk in darkness. Now, there's two reasons why the world is getting darker than it was even in Genesis 3, even in the days of Jesus. Today, in 2018, almost 2019, there are 7 billion people that populate the earth. In Jesus' day, when Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, only 45 million people lived on the earth. So a billion is a thousand million. Now remember in Jesus' day, 45 million. Today, 7 billion. Now think about just the disparity in percentages there. But not only are there 7 billion people living on the earth today, out of those 7 billion people, 3.5 billion have not had adequate access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. Half of them don't have access. Out of that 7 billion people, 2 billion have never heard the name Jesus Christ and the truth that the Bible says about Christ. There are 5 billion people that don't know Christ that are living in darkness, that are living in sin, separated from God. Because of their sin, because of their darkness, because of the culmination of all the sins and the consequences of the sin, what has happened to the world? We are growing darker and darker and darker. And the world is becoming more evil and evil and evil. It's just numbers. But not only is that one of the reasons the world is getting darker, the Bible says the world will get darker. And the Bible says specifically, in the last days, the world will go dark. Let me just read you a Bible verse out of the Bible. Because I want you to see what the Bible says. In 2 Timothy 3, this is what the Apostle Paul says about the last days. And I believe we're living in the last days. Now, does that mean that Jesus Christ is going to come back tomorrow? No, that doesn't mean that. I don't know when he's coming back. I don't claim to know that. But I believe he could come back next week, month, or year. But I know this, Jesus says in Matthew 24, he'll come like a thief in the night when people least expect it. So he's coming when we least expect it. And just before he comes, Paul says this is what it will be like. 2 Timothy 3, he says to Timothy, just before he dies, he said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends and be reckless and puffed up with pride. They will love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. If that's not a description of our world today in 2018, I don't know what it is, especially in America. That is who we are. And because of that, the world is growing darker and darker and darker. Especially in America, we see a trend towards more violence and hatred and unforgiveness every day. And all you have to do is turn on the TV. I can remember reading about a moment in history in 1966. Now, I wasn't even born then, but I have read about it. And in 1966, there was a man named Charles Whitman who in Austin, Texas, climbed the tower at the University of Texas and began shooting people out of that tower. Fourteen people were killed that day. And I have read stories about how that shocked our nation. 
and how it changed our nation and how it led our nation back to a time of prayer. Now think about the difference in 1966 and today in 2018. We read about shootings like that almost every week. And we don't even think anything about it. Oh, that's just another happenstance. That's just another thing that happens. The news media barely even covers it anymore when there's a school shooting. Our world is growing darker. And here's the problem. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're getting used to the darkness. Have you ever walked into a movie theater and the movie's already started and it's pitch black and you come in from the daytime and you walk into that movie theater and when you first get in there you can't see but you sit there long enough and your eyes adjust and they focus and then you can see in the dark because there's a little bit of light? That's what's happening to the church. We have become used to the darkness and what only, not if we become used to it, we begin to like the darkness. Vance Havner was a preacher who lived back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. In 1964, he said this about darkness. In 1964, this is what he said. He said, we are living in the dark. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The depths of present day human depravity are too vile for any word in our language to describe. We are seeing not ordinary moral corruption, but evil, double distilled, compounded, weird, uncanny, demonic combinations and concoctions of iniquity that have never a generation would heard ago. We not only live in the dark, we are getting used to the dark. There is a slow, subtle, sinister brainwashing process going on by we are gradually being desensitized to evil. There was a time when sin shocked us, but as the brainwashing process continues... What once amazed us, only now amuses us. If what was true in 1964, how much more true is that 54 years later? We're getting used to the dark. But the wonderful truth of Scripture is that God did not leave us in the dark. Because He came, He sent Jesus Christ as the light of the world. That's what the book of John says. The very beginning of John 1 says, In the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Talking about Jesus. Verse 2, He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through Him and nothing was created except through Him. The world gave life to everything that was created. And this life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Why would God send light into darkness? Even when we chose darkness over light, one reason, Jesus tells us in John 3, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. That's why God sent light. And the light is Jesus Christ. Now that light of Jesus Christ does two things. Number one, it reveals our sin. That's what our text tells us in Luke 8. All secret things will be revealed. That's what light does. It takes things that darkness distorts and it reveals the truth. So when the light comes into your life, you see yourself as who you truly are, loving darkness more than light. You see your sin, and you see the wickedness of your heart. But thank God, God doesn't leave us in our sin, because not only does light reveal what is in the dark, it also leads to life. That's what Jesus Christ came to do, to lead to life. You can see this in John chapter 8, one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Jesus Christ goes to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, they celebrate something called the illumination of the temple. That's where they illuminated the temple because light in the Old Testament just always symbolized the presence of God. They did this in the court of women. And the night after they illuminated the temple and lit that whole temple literally on fire, you could see it all over Jerusalem. 
At the very end of that, that next morning, Jesus Christ, the Bible says in John 8, is in the temple teaching. And that's when the Pharisees come and they bring a woman caught in adultery and throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they say, the Bible says, the Moses says we should stone her. What say you? And then Jesus says what we all know. Well, he who has no sin, throw the first stone. And they all leave. And Jesus is sitting there with that woman caught in adultery. And he forgives her of her sin. And she calls him Lord. She's saved that day. And she walks out a child of God. And then the very second she walks out, Jesus stands up and he says this in John 8, 12. He says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will no longer walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to light. That's what light does. It leads to life. And if you know Jesus Christ, you are walking in the light because you now have life. But the most amazing part of the Bible to me, the most amazing part of that story, is that Jesus Christ was the light of the world, but now He has ascended up into heaven, and He has left you and I as the light. You and I are the light of the world. No longer is He here illuminating darkness. He has left that job and that task to you and to me. And you say, I don't believe that. Well, listen to what He says. Jesus, in Matthew 5, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. Who's he talking to? His disciples, just like you and me. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. What do those words mean? Well, I've already told you, all light does is just illuminate darkness. And if God placed us into this world as lamps or light, he put us here to illuminate the darkness and to lead people to life through Jesus Christ. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, I thought you just said Jesus Christ is the light of the world. That's what he said in John 8, 12. That's true, yes. But Jesus says you're the light of the world in Matthew 5. Is that true? Yes, that's true. Well, how can both be true? Well, here's how it can be true. All Jesus does is radiate the light and we simply reflect it. It's like the sun and the moon. Oftentimes we say things about the moon. We say, boy, the moon is shining brightly tonight. Well, we don't know what we're talking about because all the moon is is a dead rock just floating around the planet. It doesn't generate anything. What it does is the sun radiates light, generates light, and the moon just reflects it. The light of the sun just reflects off the moon so that we can see it. And that's all we are as followers of Jesus Christ. We're placed in this world like dead rocks, but He gives us life, and then we reflect the glory of God. One of my favorite verses that I pray often for this church is Isaiah 60. And it says, Arise and shine for the glory of the Lord is upon you. That's what we do. We arise and shine as followers of Jesus Christ. Because those verses go on to say, Soon darkness will cover all the corners of the earth as black as night. But arise and shine for the glory of the Lord is upon you. He says that nations will come to your light and kings will come to your radiance. We are the light of Christ. But the problem is, Jesus says that if we're not careful, we will take our lamps and we will put a basket or a bushel or a pot over it. What does that mean? When Jesus' day, when he was talking about this parable, when he's giving us this metaphor, what would happen in a home, a normal home, is they would always have a lamp that would light the house and it would just be a pot filled with oil and it would have a wick out of it and it would always be burning. The problem in Jesus' day is they didn't have lighters, they didn't have matches, they didn't have an easy way to start a fire. So rather than putting and extinguishing the fire of that lamp out, all they would do at night when they wanted to sleep is put a bushel or a basket or a clay pot over it so that it would dampen the light so that no one could see it and it would still be burning in the morning when they woke up. 
So what we have done as followers of Jesus Christ, the reason we've lost our influence in society, the reason we've become irrelevant is because we've just hidden our light. And we've hidden our light because we're ashamed, honestly. We're ashamed of Jesus. We don't want to be weird. We don't want the world to think that we're different than them. We want to fit in. We want to be liked. We want to be popular. And because of our shame, we've covered the light of Christ. Another reason we hide the light of Christ is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what that might mean for us. We're afraid of what that might mean for our families. You see, we're more concerned about our family than the things of God. We are. And because we're more concerned about our family and their well-being and their blessing, rather than doing what the Word of God says and trusting Him, we think we can do a better job than God. So we're afraid, so we hide our basket. We try to make ourselves feel better by doing certain things, but we're really not illuminating the light of Jesus Christ. We're not speaking truth into people's life. We're not praying the way the Word of God tells us to pray. We're not giving. We're not stewarding the resources God has blessed us with. We don't have enough faith to do that. Because of that, we're not shining. And because of that, the world is growing darker by the moment. God knew that. That's why He said, in the last days, it will be like this, Timothy. Because the church... It's not the church He's called us to be. But listen, He's called us to shine for the glory of God. And as a church, as followers of Jesus Christ, we must do that. He says, you are the light of the world. Oftentimes when we see that word you, we think it's singular, but not in the Greek New Testament there. He is talking to the church because that word you is plural. You, you and I are the light of the world. The church here in Northport Baptist Church is the light that is to reflect so the world can see Jesus Christ. We must be like a city on a hilltop, as he says there in Matthew 5, so that nothing can extinguish us. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. That's why we're giving so the next generation can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, so we can just be obedient to his word and shine for the glory of God. Earlier I told you that all through the Bible, light represents God's presence. All through the Bible, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation. You can read about it in Revelation 21. It talks about heaven, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, being the light that illuminates that city. It's just the presence of God. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus writes a letter to churches just like ours. One of the letters he writes is to the church at Ephesus. The same church Paul started on one of his missionary journeys. The same church Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to. So 30 years later in Revelation 2, Jesus writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And he says something to them. He says, church, I've got a complaint against you. You've left your first love, talking about himself. Basically saying you care more about this world than you care about me. And then this is what he says, Revelation 2.5. He says, look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place among this church. Now, What is he talking about there when he says, I will come and I will remove your lampstand? What is a lampstand? What does the lamp do? We saw it in Luke 8. We saw it in Matthew 5. All a lamp does is it just lights the room. Remember in the Bible, what represents the presence of God? 
light always. So what's Jesus saying when he says, if you don't turn back to me and turn away from your sin, I'm going to return and I'm going to take away your lampstand. What he's saying is I'm going to take away the presence of God. If Jesus removes our lampstand, he just simply removes his presence. If you go back, you'll realize that the church at Ephesus didn't repent. They didn't turn back to Jesus Christ. Guess how I know? There's no church at Ephesus today. No church exists. Because Jesus took the presence of God from their church. I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but nothing is more sad than being in a church that doesn't have the presence of God. Because there's no point of having a church at all if you don't have the presence of God. Listen to me, I believe with all my heart that God's presence is here at Northport Baptist Church. And I believe one of the ways we can know and one of the ways we see His presence is how He is using our student ministry to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our student ministry is growing. It has tripled in the last few years. And we're seeing lives changed every week and lives saved every week. And what I believe is I believe that wherever God is working, you need to join in that movement and you better join Him whatever He is doing because that is how He works. He just calls His people to join Him in what He is doing. And that's why we're talking about building a student building so that we can join in the work of God. We're not doing it so that we can build buildings. Who cares about buildings? We're not doing it so that we can have more people. I don't care about more people. The reason we're building as a building is so that we can join in the work of God and we can continue to have the presence of God. Because when we tell God no, and when we don't join Him in what He's doing, and we say we have a better way, or we don't like what you're doing, when we say no, what does He do? He comes and He takes away His presence. We stop the move of God. It is as simple as that. And that is what the Bible says, and that is true. And if you don't believe me, I can point out hundreds of churches in the state of Alabama that have done exactly that. And they are dying, and they don't even know they're dead. Because the presence of God has departed from them. So this morning all we're doing is joining in the work of God. So for the last two months I've asked you to pray. If you are a member or a regular attender. And I hope you've done that. And I hope not only have you prayed but you've heard God speak into your life. So this morning, we're just going to give you an opportunity to put those prayers into practice. So this morning, if you have an envelope, a commitment card, 